0: All right, if you have a Bible with you, uh, please open to the book of Acts, chapter 4, or you can follow along the same text as printed in your bulletins there. So I told you we're doing, in the men's book group this week, Silence by Tishikiendo. Uh, oh, <laughs> is it okay? It was a strange week because this passage uh, talks a lot about dealing with opposition that you face because of your Christian faith. Uh, the book Silence talks about people who've really uh, dealt with opposition because of their Christian faith, unbelievable hardships. It's the 1600s in Japan and the Portuguese missionaries who uh, went at great risk to try to, uh, if nothing else, serve the Christians who are there, the remnant of Christians still there. And um, it's really heartrending. rending um, The two things that it made me think about especially were that I'm probably the most superficial Christian that's ever lived, one, and then, two, that how am I going to talk to Americans in the 21st century about suffering for Jesus' sake when if anyone's even ever been rude to you because of your Christian faith, you uh, have probably suffered more opposition than most American Christians, right? So, you know, it, it feels a little melodramatic to talk about the social costs that we bear as Christians living where and when we do. And, um, but even as pleasant as it is to be and identify as a Christian in our setting, it's still intimidating uh, for a lot of us. And there's a lot of timidity that comes into play when we think about having conversations with our friends about what matters most to us about our faith. Uh, That's an intimidating idea and subject to us, and we keep our heads down a lot of the time. Instead of saying very much, we kind of keep our faith private rather than speaking publicly about it. There's a reluctance there, especially about talking about our faith with people. And so what we're going to look at today is how Jesus works to give us um, confidence to open our lives to our friends with regard to our faith. And we have the uh, another dramatic example, not as dramatic as the book Silence, but pretty dramatic in the lives of the early church that we're going to look at. So let me pray and then we'll read the scriptures. Father, we ask that as we think about your word together today that you would do your work in us. Um, Where we find ourselves timid, we pray that you would give us confidence. And... Um, we ask that you'd come and meet with us. Not, we don't want these things just to be ideas in our heads, uh, but we want to have our lives shaped by your word and your Holy Spirit. So help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, Read with me, beginning of verse 23 of Acts chapter 4. It says, When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. Signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. And this is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thanks be to God. context of this, Peter and John had healed the man who was... 40-something years old, uh, who was begging outside the temple and he was able immediately to walk and it caused this huge stir uh, in the temple to see this amazing miracle from God and so the religious leaders arrested them. (laughs) Of course they would, right? They arrested them, made them spend the night in jail and then they uh, threatened them and forbade them to speak in the name of Jesus anymore. Don't preach about this anymore. And Peter and John said, well, We're more afraid of God than we are of you. Uh, Which is pretty much the the essence of the prayer they pray when they get back to. We're more afraid of God than we are of you. If you watch many mafia movies, uh, whenever a witness is considering giving evidence against the mob, are you going to you know, rat on Big Jimmy or not? The witness always says something like, You have no idea who you're dealing with here. And the police always say, but we can protect you. And then you have to decide if you're the witness. Who are you more afraid of? Big Jimmy or the police? Who is more able to protect you? And the prayer that we read in, from the believers in this situation is just that question. Who are you more afraid of? Are you more afraid of these people who are formidable? This is These are the people who killed Jesus very recently. Uh, it's not safe to go against them. But are you more afraid of them or more afraid of God? Who is more intimidating as a presence in your life, to put it negatively? You know? And that's the question they answer and what they sort out. And uh, trying to find courage and boldness to speak for them is a matter of figuring out who they're more afraid of. And so I want us to look at how they sought courage from God and how God gave them courage in this situation. It's pretty uh, normative for us and instructive for us to think about. Uh, the first thing they do, seeking courage from God, is to listen to him and to rehearse what they already know that he's said about himself, what they know about him. In um, verse 24, they start right out in their prayer. Sovereign Lord, you know, you're know, you the one who created heaven and earth and everything in it. You're in complete control of what goes on in the world. And then they quote Psalm 2 that we read earlier in our scripture reading uh, that says it's no surprise that the rulers of the earth uh pit themselves against God's anointed, his Messiah. Uh, No surprise, they, you know, the old King James is epic. It says, why do the heathen rage and the people's devise vain things? Uh, It's built into our rebellion against God that when we have power, uh, we assert it over against God's power. And so it's not surprising when the rulers opposed Jesus and his message. But they're remembering Psalm 2 because in Psalm 2 it doesn't say and God hopes that somehow his message can come through anyway. But Psalm 2 says, no, God laughs at those who would oppose him. He holds them in derision. He scoffs at them. And he terrifies them by saying, I've installed my king on Zion. When we say that Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father... That's what we're saying. Jesus has been installed at the bridge of the world as the king of the world. And this is a message of terror to the kings of the earth. I've installed my king on Zion. The nations are his inheritance. He will rule them with a rod of iron. Dash them to pieces like pottery if they don't submit to him. And if they're wise, they'll kiss the sun lest he be angry. And those who find refuge in him are spared. So the Christians, when they're being threatened by the magistrate, are saying this. They're saying, look, this is not strange. This isn't taking God by surprise. This isn't overwhelming God's hopes and plans. This is who God is. He's sovereign. And so, therefore, we can be more afraid of him than we are of these threats that we've been given. I mean... They even go back over what happened with Jesus in verse 27 and 28. Truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. Uh, This is a plot, a conspiracy against Jesus, a a judicial murder, uh, humans acting in their freedom to rebel against God. And then he says in verse 28, but they were there to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. It's like even in this most terrifying thing that you've seen when these rulers were able to kill Jesus Christ, uh, they weren't acting outside his plan at all. Nothing is taking him by surprise. Uh, Nothing thwarts his plan. Now, why are they going over this? Why do they say this at the beginning of their prayer? They haven't asked for anything yet, right, in their prayer. But what they're reminding themselves is is that God is in control. That um, even when evil people act in evil, they don't thwart God's plan. They don't change anything about his ability to love and protect us. And so when they're praying, they're thinking, what's the antidote doctrine to my terror right now? To my being afraid of people and what they can do to me? Well, the contrary doctrine to that is the sovereignty of God, that God is in control of what he's made, and he's more powerful than the people who are threatening me. And so to deal with the fear of man, they rehearse what they know about God's control of the world, and it sets their minds right. It shapes how they feel about what's happening. And it also shapes what they ask of God when they actually do go to pray. So they don't just start by blasting a shopping list to God of all the things that they want him to do. They start by... Slowing down and saying, who is he anyway? Who am I appealing to right now anyway? And it makes all the difference in what they ask. in the second thing they do to try to get courage, which is that they seek courage by speaking to God. They listen to what God said about himself and then they do speak to him in prayer. If you come off a night in jail and are threatened by the people who have killed your teacher not to speak in his name... And you think, well, I want to be faithful. I don't want to be a coward in this situation. What do you pray for? What would you ask in that situation? What would you pray for? Help me. (laughs) Rescue me. Make them stop, right? Stop these bad people from hurting me and scaring me. Lift the band, please, so that we can preach again freely. Um, Protect me from harm. Keep me safe. I'm terrified. I'd pray all those things. I'd probably also whine a little bit about, why would you let this happen to me? I was trying to do good. I was trying to speak for you in your name. And this is, I'm being punished for it. And that's not fair. And why would you treat me this way? And That's not what they prayed, is it? They said their main prayer was this. You see this, don't you? <laughs> Look on their threats. That was their prayer. Look on their threats. Not, here are all the ways I expect you to fix this. Look on their threats. Help us to be courageous and bold, which is what scared people pray. Right? Help me, be, help me not be afraid. Help me be bold. And then they say, keep doing these miracles of mercy. Keep showing your mercy. They don't say, squash them. Show them your vengeance right now. Vindicate us. They say, keep doing these miracles of mercy so people can keep finding hope in Jesus. Um. Now, that's how you pray after you've thought pretty hard about who God is and what he's up to in the world. When you've realized, you know, this opposition isn't uh, an oddity in the Christian life. This is the normal way the, the rescue of the world happens that Jesus came to bring. It's the way of the cross. Jesus suffered to redeem the world, and he calls His people to suffer in that cause as well. Uh, this isn't weird. We just need courage to handle it. And we ask you to keep bringing the fix to the world. Right? That's their prayer. If you think God's a genie, you don't pray this way. You know, it doesn't matter what the character of the genie is. The genie's your slave to do your bidding, right? If, if you think God's a vending machine and you're just trying to find the right change to make him do what you want to do, his character doesn't matter. But if you're in a relationship with God, then who he is shapes your prayers very much. Right, what you're going to ask him, what you're going to say to him, and our prayers are kind of odd that way. Usually, because most of us, I hope you too, it's most if not at least I do, I just come with a grocery list to God. Here's what I want: one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. I want these things. I usually really don't get to seven, to be honest. But you know, I just go and give my list, and uh, it's a weird way to respond to a God who is personal and who's revealed Himself to us this way. It's almost like we've been given. Uh, In the scriptures, this elaborate, deeply personally revealing story from God, uh, explaining his love to us, explaining what's broken in us, the length to which he's gone to rescue us. And he lays his heart out to us in the scripture this way. And if someone did that to you as a friend, laid their heart out to you about all of their feelings toward you, their relationship with you. And at the end of that story, you just responded by uh, blasting them with a list of things you want them to do for you you'd think, well, you don't even know me or want to know me. You're just using me. And uh, so it's instructive to see here that basking in the relationship they have with God and thinking about what he's said to them already and then praying in light of that uh, is a personal, relational way to speak to God. And it's the right way to pray. You know, it's, uh, it's praying like a child speaks to a parent, not an employee speaks to an employer. Uh, not just looking for what you can do for me and what I can get from you, but spreading out these issues in light of our relationship together. And so their prayer is look on these things. Look on their threats. They're not saying, here's what you should do about it, because they trust their Father, right? You'll you'll know what to do about it. Just look at it. (laughs) Look on their threats, which is a pretty beautiful and faith-filled prayer. So, This is how they're looking for courage. They rehearse what God's done. They they, uh, pray and ask Him for courage and help. And the way He responds to them is pretty simply, He gives them the help of His Holy Spirit. That's what it says in verse 31. When they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the Word of God with boldness. Filled with the Holy Spirit... Bible uses language like this um, a lot of times. It talks about anybody that's a Christian having the Holy Spirit living present with them all the time. You know, so God is with us constantly as Christians. But the filling of the Holy Spirit often happens for uh, a specific task that God has for you to do. Um, like the Holy Spirit came down on Jesus for his public ministry. He was anointed for that. Or people would be filled with the Spirit. In Acts chapter 2, you saw so that they could speak about the hope of the gospel, those kind of things. And partly what's happening here is that, that they're being enabled to speak when they're scared. Um, but the Holy Spirit, when he fills us, doesn't just like... It's not an impersonal force that energizes us. So now we are, you know, a super Christian, ready to go, not afraid of anyone. The way the Holy Spirit works when he fills us is to... Uh, make very uh, palpable the love of God for us. You know, his work is a work of assurance where he says, you really belong to me. The the spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And uh, when we're being equipped to serve him, that's the thing that he most uh, profoundly convinces us of and lets us feel. That we belong to him. That we're safe with him. And these are the things that undermine our reluctance and our timidity when it comes to speaking about the hope we have in Jesus to our friends. Um, because why do you keep your head down and stay private with your faith instead of uh, sharing that part of your life with people you're close to? I think there are a few reasons that make us reluctant and timid. Uh, one is that we're pessimistic and we think, well, nothing's going to happen anyway. Those people are probably too far away from the faith to ever become Christians. Now, if you said that out loud, you'd probably catch yourself and say, "That's well, I'm not supposed to say that, but they're just people I think of that I think they're too far away. They're never going to become a Christian. There are too many obstacles for them to come over, to come into the faith. Too many pointy edges of the faith, so it's not even worth talking about. But if you're praying about your friends to a sovereign God... And you realize that you're standing with him as only because of his grace, that it's a complete miracle that you're a Christian. Then it gets pretty hard to say that person's too far away, can never be converted. Um, They're no further away than you were. Bible says nobody seeks for God. Nobody. And if anybody does, it's a miracle of God's mercy. And he's willing to do miracles of his mercy in places where you wouldn't expect it. And so when the Holy Spirit convinces us of God's grace and acceptance and reminds us that we weren't the good kind of people that become Christians, we were completely lost people who got mercy, then it changes our pessimism towards our friends. So the Holy Spirit overcomes timidity, one, by overcoming our pessimism, reminding us of God's grace. Um, Second reason we keep our heads down is because we're afraid. Um, Even though nobody's going to hit you, Nobody's probably even going to be rude to you if you say something about Jesus. Um, I mean, I have rarely had anyone even be slightly rude to me. Somebody may have talked behind your back sometime uh, because they thought you were a fanatic or something. You may have felt like you were risking friendship uh, by talking about things that you knew might be uncomfortable for your friends. But that's about the extent of the threat that we face, honestly. Um, But the way the Holy Spirit overcomes even our timid fears uh, is by making us fear God more. The same old mafia thing, you know. Can he protect me? Do I have no idea who I'm dealing with? You know, that's the same question. And here, after they prayed, the house was shaken. You know, like a train going by right outside the window. Which has never happened to me after I've prayed about my timidity. It seems like it would help a lot if I could have the room shaken every once in a while. But they're reminded by God shaking that place that he's more to be feared than any threat that people can give to us. And if you're in a situation of genuine danger like many Christians are in the world today, uh, this becomes a very profound part of the hope is that um, no matter what happens to me, even though it's likely to be very dire, Um, God is rightly to be feared more and will take care of me. Even if he calls me to be a martyr for him, he'll take care of me. Uh, I fear him more than I fear what men can do to me. Uh, But for us, too, when we do have to count social costs, when we do things that feel a little risky, when we do things that feel um, what my wife calls cringe moments in conversations sometimes, uh, not being obnoxious or weird, but just sometimes saying things makes you feel risky. Uh, When you do that, remember... That uh, you have a lot more to fear in God than you do in human beings. Uh, uh, not that he's going to terror not a terrifying fear, but a fear of respect. Third thing uh, that the Holy Spirit does to give us courage is gives us joy. And uh, this may be the biggest one. Um, the Holy Spirit convinces us that we're God's children. He cries out within us. That we belong to God and He's as delighted with us as a parent is with a child. And when He does this, He reminds us our greatest delight, our greatest joy is in Him. And if you are palpably experiencing joy in your relationship with God, existentially, experientially having joy in your relationship with God, and you have friends, and you care anything about your friends, you're gonna talk to them about your joy. You talk to your friends if you love them and care for them about what makes you happy. When you talk about this is how I deal with my fears, this is how I deal with problems in my life, this is what makes me happy in this week to week. If your deepest joy comes from Jesus and knowing him, and you have friends from whom you exclude that information You're not even being a very good friend, right? Uh, Love compels you to speak about that to your friends. Uh, Not to manipulate them, not to try to uh, judo them into becoming a Christian, uh, even though that is what you hope will happen. But if you open your life and your heart to your friends who aren't Christians and tell them what you really think and experience as a Christian, uh, you're bearing witness for him, and it's something that God tends to use very much in bringing new people into his kingdom. And uh, if you're doing that in a manipulative way, don't. You're know, you not supposed to manipulate people or use them. Uh, but if you're withholding that information from people in a less than loving way, don't do that either. You want to open your life and heart to your friends who aren't Christians. Now, you're at the early stages of a church startup and And... Uh, the main reason, I think, that people jump in on a church at this stage is because of the promise of the fun of seeing new people coming into the faith. Right? We're starting a new mission church. We could all manage to drive to a church that already exists and be happy and fine in those churches, right? None of us is uh, deprived in that regard. But we start a new church because we're hoping it's going to be a portal for new people coming into the faith. And um, that means that for you, as a part of this church especially, you need to push yourself in some of these areas. Like, you need to be regularly praying for your friends that you have who aren't already Christians. Or praying that God would give you some new and better friends who aren't already Christians to, for you to share your life with. For some of you, the, a big cringe moment step might just be mentioning to a friend that you go to church. And it matters to you. That might be a big step for you. Uh... Don't be ashamed if it is, but that's what you're called to do. Um, Ideally, you'll be spending a lot of time listening to your friends, finding out what they believe, finding out what their experience is uh, with God, with the church, how they approach life. Uh, So you can love them. And so when you do speak about your hope, you can speak thoughtfully and lovingly. You need to be inviting people into your home who aren't Christians to come to be at your table or invite them to come to church with you if you have the nerve to do that. But the main thing is to tell and as friends to share your story with people that you love about what's most meaningful to you and what Jesus has done in your life and what your relationship with him is like. And if that scares you, which it probably does, it scares me, just remember that even the apostles themselves who got to experience miracles right in front of their faces and rooms shaking when they prayed for courage were still so scared that they had to pray for courage. Right? Uh, don't be ashamed of being scared, but pray about being scared. If you think the plan for Midtown Presbyterian is for uh, uh, Julia and me, to use our unbelievable magnetism and spiritual giftedness to go recruit everyone from Tucson to come in and and become Christians, uh, you're misled. That is not the plan. (laughs) The plan is for your friends to come in here. That's the plan. It's for your friends to come into the faith and come into the church. So do you think God loves Tucson more than you do? Do you think he's more merciful to your friends than you are? Do you think he wants his church to thrive and grow and for new people to come into the faith as much as you do, more than you do? I'm sure he does. Do you think he actually uses Christians who are no better Christians than you are to do that? I know he does. He uses such as you and such as me to bring the hope of Jesus to our friends. I'm very excited to see and eager to see of what he's going to do through you in this place, in this town, and in this church. I think it's going to be fun to see. But we need him to give us courage for that. Now let's pray.